Welcome back, everyone, to Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits podcast, the show where our editorial staff provides analysis and insight into the biggest news stories in Bitcoin. My name is Peter Chuaga. I'm a senior editor at Bitcoin Magazine, and today I am very happy to be joined by Vlad Kostya, a Bitcoin Magazine staff writer and video interviewer, a political philosophy student, and an all-around talented Romanian Bitcoiner. Welcome to the show, Vlad, and thank you for being with us. Thank you, Peter. But hold up a minute. I'm not sure if the stuff that I wrote is the biggest news in Bitcoin. (laughs) Well, I guess uh, the listeners will just have to trust my judgment on that. It might not be hot news, but in my opinion, it's one of the most comprehensive series on uh, hardware wallets. Uh, It's a full-on review that dives into um, you know, multiple different aspects of the leading wallets. Uh, so in that sense, I think it is really important, maybe not news, but information that Bitcoiners should be paying attention to. Yeah, I agree to some extent, because if you stay in the Bitcoin space for too long, it's going to get confusing. And everybody is going to tell you, no, you should get a treasure. Oh, no, no, no. You should get the ledger because it has the secure element. And then they're going, no, no, the cypherpunk choice is to go for the cold card. But wait, unless you know how to run your own node and run something like Electrum personal server, then no, you should get something like the keep key or like the Bitbox O2. And there's a lot of hype and a lot of marketing. And if you look online for reviews, you're going to find just hype pieces with bloggers who most likely received the free hardware wallet and they were told to review it but they pretty much copied and pasted some text from press releases because it's always top of the line and industry leading technology and blah blah and it's too much hype and not enough analysis so when i started working on this project i just tried to stay away from that type of approach and be as critical as I can. And I think I upset some people. And if you look on Reddit right now, somebody has pinned the series on the R Bitcoin, what do you call it, a subreddit? Yeah. And a lot of people are upset about my rating for physical durability, especially for the cold card, which seems to be a very big camp. And they say, no, it's made out of, I don't know what type of very strong and reinforced plastic. And it can even take big and strong physical shocks. I can smash it against walls and I can smash it with a hammer and I can shoot it with a gun, which I did not do because uh, (laughs) why would I do that, really? I just touched it very firmly. And I said to myself, okay, this can be broken because it's larger than the ledger, for example. It has no metal on it it's just plastic so it should get a lower rating than something which has some metal on it but they disagreed with me yeah and just to back up for a second if any listeners haven't read this series uh you can find that these articles we're referring to probably the easiest way would be to go to vlad's author page on bitcoinmagazine.com it was a series of three articles all you know well over a thousand words um with the label Bitcoin hardware wallet reviews. Um, It covered, compared the physical appearance, ease of use, uh, extra features, pretty much everything about 
the five leading hardware Bitcoin wallets out there. Uh, so those devices would be the Bitbox 2, Cold Card MK3, Trezor Model T, Keep Key, and Ledger Nano X. And Vlad, as you were just kind of diving into there, you know, for the most part, these, these reviews do come out. There's a lot out there. They seem to really glance over um, just kind of the be very positive, be uh, not very detail oriented. But on the other hand, when you do kind of provide some hard analysis, even maybe pointing out some of the flaws of some of these devices, you tend to get a lot of flack online. It sounds like that's been your experience so far after publishing this series. I came to the conclusion that you really cannot go wrong with any choice. So whether or not you get the cold card or the keep key or whatever, as long as you know what you're doing and you connect it to Electrum or Wasabi and run your full node, then you're going to get pretty much the same experience. But if you care about the interface that the manufacturer is providing and you're not so advanced as a user, then you should probably consider all the trade-offs. Because, for example, if you use the ShapeShift platform with the KeepKey, then you're going to have to sign up with your email address and you're going to give ShapeShift your transaction data. They're going to know how much Bitcoin you own and they're going to know how much you're transacting and when and all this type of privacy-related information that unless you're a trader of sorts, you don't really want to give away. Whereas in the case of the cold card, you can never connect the device to your computer. It makes use of a BIP, which is called partially signed Bitcoin transactions. And you can just connect the device to a power supply. And from there you do your operations and it's going to get saved on an SD card that you can afterwards connect to your computer so that the device itself, which holds your private key, never really gets connected to an internet device. And I suppose that's the paranoid level of security and privacy. Right, and so as you've said, you know, you do, it takes, uh, to kind of differentiate between these leading wallet uh, options, you have to really dive into some of the unique features, some of the stuff like quote unquote power users would probably only differentiate between. And that's one of the big challenges, you know, I could see editorially from, uh, from your task at writing this series of articles. But what did you kind of think it would be like going into reviewing these? And, and what were maybe some of the challenges that you found as you sort of started trying to actually review and dive into all these features and then explain them to readers in a way that was comprehensive but also kind of um you know a summary of sorts i think the first challenge was when i realized that there is no way i can cover every aspect in one article Mm -hmm. and when the first one got published i remember i got a lot of negative feedback and they said why didn't you just write one article and put everything in there but i think by the time the third came out it became pretty obvious why i did not do that But the second biggest challenge was to understand what the hackers have written and how they have actually hacked the wallets. And you know about it because I made you edit like three times, (laughs) just one section. Right. And this would be the, I think you're referring to the third article in the series here. That one was my favorite, uh, certainly because you kind of rose up to this challenge of parsing all the 
bug bounty programs and all the work that like sort of uh, uh, so-called white hat hackers have done to identify security problems with these wallets. And then how, how did the manufacturers kind of step up and uh, address those problems that have been identified? Well, I think we are in the golden age of hardware wallets right now. And the research is definitely very intensive. And you have companies that try to outperform each other by hiring better hackers that are able to hack the competition's devices, which is fascinating. But for the consumer, it's really great because they come up with fixes within a week or so. And just last week, we have seen exploits in the cold card and in the Trezor Model T, which is interesting because it's a good way to improve at the end of the day. It might be terrible for PR. They have to humble themselves and say, oh, we messed up in this respect and we have to make up for it. But the consumers who are able to update to the latest firmware and follow everything that the manufacturer is bringing up as an update are just getting more security. And I guess all this effort and all this competition that is going on is beneficial for us at the end of the day. But I did not quite answer your question, have I? <laughs> I think to some extent, but yeah, if you could um, maybe offer some more explanation about, I suppose, the your work diving into the bug bounty programs, the, the uh, issues that hackers uncover, and I don't know, what, what is the challenge like reporting that? So I, I picked some sources that I was able to find online. I already knew about the wallet hack. No, it's called walletfail.org or something. It was an initiative that resulted from a presentation that took place last December. And a team of free hackers was able to really mess with the Trezor and the Ledger. And as far as I remember, I think they extracted the seed words from the Trezor, which is the ultimate type of hack, because you're basically taking the private key and stealing the funds if you have physical access. Right. And with the Ledger, they played with the firmware to the extent that they could play the video game Snake on the device, just yeah. to prove that you can modify the software. And Worst case scenario, maybe that you're not going to hack the safe element, which is a microchip inside the device that is very well encrypted and may take a lot of effort to hack. But you can mess with the general purpose microcontroller, which is the chip which operates the buttons and processes the instructions from the computer. And maybe you can change the address to which you're sending the bitcoins or authorize payments without the consent of the user. And you can do all sorts of interesting stuff that doesn't even have to steal the coins themselves. It just has to find a smart way of taking them. And it's challenging to keep up with all this and understand the hacks because you find blog posts and descriptions of what the hackers have done, but it's some, sometimes it's very technical. And if you have to explain it in plain language, Sometimes you may get it wrong, and I'm happy that the person who reported one of the hacks was also there to explain it. And I did some sort of back and forth exchange on Twitter, and at some point I just said, okay, I understand that 
I'm overwhelmed by your expertise and there is no way for me to really grasp what you're trying to do there. So how about you help me just rewrite this passage, this phrase with which you agree that is wrong. And I was actually helped by, I don't remember his name. I should look it up just to give credit. Yeah. And that, um, uh, that's, you're kind of alluding to one of the challenges just in general that we have at Bitcoin magazine that, you know, crypto blockchain and Bitcoin reporters have. Uh, it's such a highly technical space. It's so easy to, you know, accidentally omit items or to phrase things just like, you know, uh, in a way that makes them technically incorrect and kind of relying on the technical people in the space is something that all of our reporters do. Vlad, that you did a great job of for this article, certainly. Um, so that, that's always hard, I think. Um, I wanted to ask, so you, you mentioned this, I think, in a couple of responses ago. You feel like we're living in the golden age of uh, hardware wallets. Uh, you know, when I've got my, uh, I have a ledger. When I decided to get the ledger, it was really between ledger and Trezor. Those were kind of the two options. I actually went with ledger because uh, they sent me one to do a review a few years ago. And, I, you know, I think it's great. It's worked out just fine. Uh, but I'm not exactly a, a power user. Um, I would ask you, what, what, what might you kind of, why, sh why should people be careful? There are all these options now for Bitcoin hardware wallets, as you say. Why should people maybe be more careful about parsing the different options? Why should they read your article carefully and really think of, through, you know, what kind of Bitcoin user am I and, and what kind of hardware wallet option is best for me? Well, before I forget, let me just say that the name of the hacker that I did not remember during the previous question is the charlatan. But to answer your last question, I think it's about caring about your privacy. Because essentially, I think all hardware wallets, if you use them properly, will be able to secure your coins and make sure that you're not going to lose them unless somebody like a hacker has physical access to, to the device. Because really, if you have physical access and you can touch it and disassemble it and take away pieces and mess with it, you're going to find ways to steal the coins. But if you keep it in a safe place, then you're pretty okay. You'll have fairly good encryption. But it's all about the privacy because you said you have the ledger, which mm -hmm. connects to the ledger live interface. Mm -hmm. It looks very nice. It's useful. It has all the details that you might expect from a hardware wallet interface. But at the same time, you're relying on the ledger servers. So they know how, how many Bitcoins you own. And also they know when you connect and when you transact. And you also rely on somebody else's full node, which might be ledgers or might be a nearby full node that is identified. That's not very clear. I'm not quite sure about that. But the bottom line is that Ledger does not allow you to natively connect to your full node and do certain operations which enhance your privacy. On the other hand, you can run your Ledger Nano S, I guess, on Wasabi Wallet, which has a greater de degree of privacy because, first of all, it runs via Tor, which conceals your IP address. And secondly, it allows you to do coin joins, which mixes your outputs so that it's hard to identify from where you received your Bitcoins and 
the next person who receives them is going to have a very hard time identifying any links between yourself and the previous people who owned the same coins. Right. And in Bitcoin, this is a big issue because when you don't care about privacy at all and you just send transactions, you're not just revealing how much you own, but you're revealing how much people who transacted with you also own. So you're, you're giving away information about a lot of people when you make any transaction at all. Right. And also another type of privacy that you find in Wasabi. And I think of all the hardware wallets with native interfaces, only, only the Bitbox O2 has this, is coin control, which means that let's say that on the ledger, you receive two different transactions and one is with 10 Bitcoins and the other one is with 0.1 Bitcoins. So 0.0.1, that's 1 million Satoshis. And you just want to send to somebody 500,000 Satoshis. And that's half of the second UTXO that you have. And if you do this on the ledger, it's not clear whether or not it's going to send from the bigger UTXO or from the smaller one. And if you send from the bigger one where you have lots of Bitcoins, you're going to signal to the receiver if they check a block explorer, they're going to see that you're rich. And in some cases that can turn you into a target or whatever. If you have UTXO control like Wasabi and like the Bitbox O2 interface, then you can just pick which one of the groups of coins you want to use when making the transaction so that you don't reveal, you only reveal what you want as opposed to everything. If you send a small amount of a small amount, then it's going to be, work just fine for you. The right. receiver will not know about the bigger one. And it's not until you really parse the uh, details of each kind of solution as you have in this article that you can kind of decide where your privacy needs um, and your kind of like ease of use, you know, kind of overlap where your line is and really like dive into what kind of trade-offs each individual wallet is making um, in privacy to sort of function. Um, so I think that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, I, I also want to ask, this is something you, you talked about earlier on this and, I, and you've mentioned it in some of our editorial meetings. And I think I've seen it to be true for sure. Uh, you've written these ex comprehensive, very well researched, took uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of time and effort to create these kind of long and detailed reviews. And then you put a, a chart at the bottom of each one with like numerical scores. Um, you could maybe call them rankings. And I think we both have the sense that a lot of readers kind of skip the article text and the detailed nuance, just jump down to the bottom, look at your score, and then kind of like uh, maybe criticize or if their favorite wallet's ranked lower in some aspect than another, get maybe a little bit upset. What would you say to someone who, you know, consumes the articles this way? How would you advocate for the, no, it's really worth your time to read through all the detailed explanation above the charts. Don't just skip to the bottom. I'm not sure if I can tell people what to do with their time. <laughs> if you had the, yeah, if you could. Article, I just skip to the bottom and try to find a conclusion and get maybe the simplest, most comprehensive piece of information that helps me understand what this is about. So if they just scroll to the bottom and see the results and the rankings, 
then the only suggestion that I have for them is that before they get upset and start tagging me on Twitter and asking me angrily why I chose to give that score, to just look at the methodology just for that small section on which they disagree and find my criteria. And after that, maybe that they disagree with the criteria, which I guess is fine because you can compare a Ferrari with a Toyota or something and your criteria might be how much gas it consumes and how sturdy it is on a long trip. And you can conclude that the Toyota is a lot better. And a lot of people will be angry at you and say, whoa, that, that's a luxury car, the Ferrari. So why didn't you rank it as being better? Well, it's just that the methodology that was created for analysis seems to favor this over that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be intentional. So I did not create a methodology with the, with the intention to make one product look bad. I just picked some criteria that I thought were relevant for myself. And I definitely agree that a different article can be written to analyze the other aspects, such as physical durability in the real sense, like you smash into pieces every hardware wallet and see how much they can take. I'm not sure if... That's a worthy kind of test to be made, but it's definitely much more interesting and much more accurate than the firm touching that I have done to the devices. <laughs> right, sure. Uh, and there is a lot more that can be written, believe it or not. I think every little field that I put into tables can be an extensive article in itself, like yeah. history of hacks or a secure chip or multi-sig. Open source software. And that kind of touches on the next question I have here. Um, You know, certainly by the end of this series, I was getting the sense that, you know, um, this generation of hardware wallets has come a long way uh, from previous generations, but that there is still a lot of work that could be done and and certainly will be done uh, to improve them. So I'd ask you, if we revisited this series let's say with the next generation of hardware wallets would you be able to speculate on where you see probably improvement most likely to be made where you'd encourage it to be made the most by these manufacturers um, or like how you think the next generation of hardware wallets if you reviewed them what that review might look like right now it's hard for me to speculate how the situation is going to change as Trezor, for example, as the oldest player in the field and the original hardware wallet, seems to be a bit behind in terms of hardware technology. They did not implement a secure element, just like the ledger. And I don't think they want that because the secure element has a bit of mysticism behind it. The manufacturers don't really post all the information about it because they don't want it to be easily hacked. So the Trezor is the kind of device that is transparent and is fixed along the way. I wish they would use more physical buttons and stop relying on touchscreens. But during a discussion that I had with Rodolfo Novak, who is the CEO of CoinKite, the company which produces the cold card, he told me that when you buy you buy parts, it's actually cheaper to get touch screens as opposed to physical buttons for whatever reason, for, due to economies of scale and the popularity of touch screens nowadays. 
it has become cheaper, believe it or not, to have touch screens. So I would prefer if all the manufacturers opted for physical buttons as they are harder to deteriorate, deteriorate over time. Mm-hmm. And maybe Ledger can become much more transparent in regards to their approach to hardware and software. Right. They only open source part, parts of the software but there's still a lot that they keep secret and they say it's for security reasons. So whenever you buy a Trezor, you trust in their cypherpunk philosophy that they're going to fix any issue in a timely manner and they're going to pay for hackers to identify all the issues that can be found in a device. And when you pay for a ledger, you trust the company that is going to be competent and it has security by default because I'm not sure how much can be done with that secure element. Right. Actually, I take that back. I, I think with firmware updates, you can change a lot. But I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah. With the Trezor, you trust the community of hackers and security experts that it's going to get better. But with the Ledger, it's not as transparent. So you don't know really what's going on behind You just have to trust the company that it provides you the best kind of security. And everything else that came afterwards, like the KeepKey, I think that's a Trezor clone that, uh, and I mean that physically, in terms of parts and components on the inside, it has the same chips as the Trezor. And they even used parts of the Trezor code to build their own, except that it's made from more premium materials and it's bigger and it looks a bit fancier. But with that one, I also expect it to improve. And I also expect from Bitbox and Cold Card to really compete with each other. And they they already started. They take shots at each other on Twitter. And I got caught in this fight where they accuse each other. For example, they accuse Cold Card that they did not properly disclose the hack that engineers from shift crypto which is the mother company of the bitbox have identified and they're also upset that cold card hasn't properly credited the hackers on their blog because two of them worked on the issue and they only credited one and they did not give any kind of bounty reward they just sent a couple of cold card wallets and a cold card printed mug and they were upset about this and they said you know we spent a lot of time and effort into this and the community custom is that whenever somebody finds an, an exploit in your product, you just pay them. Right. And the cold car response was, we pay for researchers, not for our competition. Which, if you ask me, it doesn't really matter because an exploit is still an exploit, whether it's found by your in-house researcher or by the competition, you still have to fix it and you have to give credit to whoever finds it. because. The cold card side says about the Bitbox that their first hardware wallet was just wrecked. And it was terrible in the end. It was proven by a hacker that he could extract the private keys and he could do all sorts of stuff on the device. So that's why they gave up on it. They discontinued the production and they just released a new product which fixes the problems of the old. And it has been on the market for about one month. And during my review, I was not able to write about any kind of exploit. 
the only reason why I think they are competent and they might have gotten it right this second time is that they have a Bitcoin core developer who is part of their team. His name is Jonas Shrelly. And I, I don't think somebody who has worked on the Bitcoin core software, which arguably is the most difficult part of development in this space, is incompetent and would associate himself with something that is subpar and will eventually fail. But we're, we're going to see. Yeah, and um, I was just going to say what you're diving into as far as the vulnerabilities, I believe all of that stuff is in the third uh, part of your evaluation. And uh, that was definitely, as I have said, my favorite uh, article in the series. I think it's definitely the one that gets into um, the most detail and the most types of, you know, kind of like takes a, a hardware wallet review and, and you'll see a lot of these on the web and uh, is truly unique and sort of like the kind of, reporting that we love to have at Bitcoin Magazine as you're diving into uh, like the highly technical aspects, um, stuff that, you know, like, uh, as you have said, exposing vulnerabilities really aligns with a lot in the crypto space and the Bitcoin space. Um, so again, just for any listeners that haven't, haven't read the series, definitely check out every article, but in particular, that third one, you've done some reporting that I haven't ever seen anywhere else. And uh, I thought that was great. Uh, so th those are actually all the questions I had Vlad written down, but is there anything else I didn't ask about that you'd want listeners to know about this series of reviews? I, I think at some point, but before I answer, just let me thank you for the kind words. You earned it, man. Really. I don't want to brag or anything, but I put a lot of work into this. And for the third part, I think I've worked like 14 hours straight. I said to myself, I'm not going to get up unless I finish. So I started working around 8 p.m. and I got up at 6 in the morning. Wait, plus 14 hours, 10 in the morning. That's when I went to sleep. <laughs> yeah, and any, any listeners, they probably have at least seen the articles. Um, they're so worth diving into because all that hard work is uh, super apparent. Yeah, I just want to let everyone know that it looks intimidating and I don't think I've made anyone's research any easier. <laughs> there's a lot to read and at some point you're going to run into some sort of roadblock if you follow the marketing maybe that you're going to choose a product according to your personal values and the price and the features that you think are use useful but if you read the review and you find out that pretty much any device can be hacked and find this history of how they got hacked and discovered that they all have trade-offs and you're going to find a feature in the other one that is more desirable. Then uh, I get, I guess that's the kind of point where you get a, the decisional fatigue and possibly don't buy anything. And you go to the point where you ask yourself, why do I have even need a hardware wallet? Is it just some sort of fashionable item that I should be using? Why can't I just use a paper wallet or some kind of steel plate, which arguably is the best type of cold storage unless you're willing to huddle for 10 plus years or something and you're not going to touch the coins it's better to use a hardware wallet because otherwise you're going to have to type in your private key whenever you want to use your coins and that's a lot worse <laughs> i mean you you might have it stored on cold storage you have the private key written down 
but when you want to access the funds, you're going to have to type in. And you have to really trust that your computer is safe when you do that. So when you use a hardware wallet, it's a lot more secure in this regard because it has some type of advanced cryptography, which makes sure that this external device is safe. And even if your computer is filled with viruses and spyware and malware and all sorts of programs that are malevolent, you're going to be able to trust this small device. And I have reviewed the best five on the market right now. And I know that I left out some of them, like the Cool Wallet, like I I think somebody suggested the BitFi, but I disagree that it's a good option. It was, I think the BitFi was the one recommended by John McAfee as being hack-proof, unhackable, and it was hacked a week later or something. Yeah, not too surprising. So... You can't really go wrong as long as you pick one of these five. They all have their advantages and disadvantages. My recommendation is for you to learn how to use Electrum or Wasabi if you care about your privacy, because no software that you're going to find from the manufacturer is going to provide you advanced privacy. You're going to connect to the company's servers and from there, you're going to give away your transaction history, which in the case of the keep key is very evident because if you buy the keep key new through their store, then it costs $40. But if you buy it with a sign up on their website where you give away some personal data, then it's going to be $10. So for $30, they're buying your transaction data and they associate it with your name. And they're going to know how much you own, with whom you're transacting, and all sorts of information that they might be collecting. Yeah, and again, that points to why it's worth kind of parsing through the review to consider all these things that probably the manufacturer, you know, while maybe not hiding them, are not as upfront as as you've been in all that detailed reporting. Uh, Well, don't buy a Trezor if you care about operation security. So, if you if the Trezor looks like a car key remote with which you open your car and you don't have a car and you carry one with you, then it's going to look suspicious. You don't want to use anything in public that looks out of the ordinary, especially if you own lots of Bitcoins. But it doesn't matter. No matter how much you own, you should choose the kind of device that helps you blend in. If it looks like a USB flash drive or something, then it's fine. Now, it will not look flashy. People will not look at you and say, that's something fancy. And I might might be interested in stealing that. That's another aspect of security that gets overlooked sometimes. Yep. And then all that info, you know, you you dive into that in part one of the series for sure. Um, Great. Well, Vlad, thanks again so much for calling in. Where can listeners follow you on Twitter? So it's T-H-E. V-L-A-D-C-O-S-T-E-A, the Vlad Costa. Uh, it was taken without the D, and I did not want to put any numbers. So, yeah, I ended up with this one. Great. Uh, I encourage everyone to follow Vlad to see more of this kind of reporting. Vlad, thanks again. Oh, thank you, Peter. That does it for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine's Weekly Bits Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. 
The Bitcoin Magazine Weekly Bits podcast is a BTC Media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. It was produced and edited by Graham Peterson and David Hollerith. If you're interested in reading the stories we discussed or others like it, check out our homepage at BitcoinMagazine.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine to keep up with all the latest. You can find more engaging podcasts over at letstalkbitcoin.com and you can follow them on Twitter at the LTB Network for all the latest episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the show on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the show, please take a few seconds and give us a rating and review. It really helps us improve and reach new listeners. Finally, I want to remind you about the upcoming Bitcoin 2020 conference. It's being held in San Francisco from March 27 to 28 next year, and it's already shaping up to be the biggest Bitcoin conference ever. I know there's a ton more to announce and lots of exciting stuff to see already. You can learn more at Bitcoin2020Conference.com.